0: So here we are, the last evening of our retreat together. A few people today have been saying how it feels like they've been here forever, or <laughs> for a, a much longer time than they have. And, yeah. and I, was, I was sensing, well, what, what do I feel is needed this evening, and sure some of you would like to have a nice bedtime story and <laughs> uh, be tucked up with something uh, soothing and unchallenging. And others of you might be kind of hoping for that you know, coup de grace that's going to ensure that you leave here tomorrow fully enlightened. <laughs> so I have to say that both, both those sets of people are going to be disappointed, <laughs> I think. Though you never know. Actually, I shouldn't say that's such a thing. Uh, but anyway, what was coming to me uh, just was feeling a sense of uh, wanting to slightly uh, summarise a little bit, and also, but also, um, you know, revisit some of the things from today. And particularly, I felt like I wanted to, to reflect a little bit more around. Um, what I began to talk about this morning in terms of uh, when I was using this acronym of RAIN for meeting difficult experience, the N part of so you might remember RAIN was about recognising uh, a difficulty that's present, uh, allowing it, so dropping that sense of immediately trying to fix or get rid of investigating it or inquiring into it and the N is about non-identification or um, we often say sort of blithely don't take it personally yeah very easy huh Uh, so just what does what does that all mean so this is just a, a little more kind of delving into that or reflecting around that to begin with yeah, and we've we've been beginning this or investigating this sense of well how how personal is this experience what is this what is this sense of self a little bit just in relation to the body with that invitation to explore where does the sense of this body begin and end you know? and when we we relate to this body not as a concept of a body but actually as a felt-sensed experience, it becomes a little bit more unclear, really. You know, am I just this thing that looks like this sitting here? Or is there, uh, you know, the boundaries of that a little uh, less defined, in a sense? And uh, last night, I think Brad sort of raised the suggestion you know, that maybe we're more than just this body, there's much more to our experience, isn't there, than just this, this sense, this physical sense of the body being here. One thing that uh, Ajahn Samedo always used to to reflect around is, you know, we tend to initially think that awareness is in the body somehow. The consciousness is located in the body, awareness is in the body. But actually, as we meditate, we become aware that. The, the body is actually in awareness uh, which is quite an interesting thing to explore and then also a, a few people have said how much they like that uh, little reading that I did yesterday from Thich Nhat Hanh, which is suggesting that um, maybe you know we think of ourselves as being this, this person moving around on the earth and the earth is down there but it's interesting the sense that uh, we are in the earth. We're not on the earth. We're in the earth. We're part of the earth. You know, uh, where does the earth end and where do I begin? And do I belong more to me or to the earth? So these are these are really simple ways of, of not not so simple, but uh, interesting and, and perhaps less. Fraught than our kind of emotional uh, scenarios, ways of exploring how that sense of me is something that shifts around. And as we watch this in our meditation, then we, we begin to see that the sense of self isn't really a solid thing, it's a changing process. So not to deny that there's a sense of self, but to recognize it as a process. It's almost like a process of, of selfing. Mm-hmm. And I was also mentioning how, you know, I, I think it's really fascinating, this question, how, well, how many senses does a human being have? And actually that the sense of self is, is actually being discovered to be a, a composite of different senses. So we have sort of a sense of agency that gives us the impression that I'm the person who's doing this or a sense of uh, ownership, like I, I can tell that this is my hand and not your hand Things like that. or a sense of where this body is located in space and many others I'm sure that I'm, you know, I'm not, a, not an expert on this but that sense of self is a kind of, um, is a composite thing And so when, we, when we're experiencing any, any situation, but particularly as I was talking about these, these kind of bundles of difficult experience that I'm suggesting that we can... You know, we, we don't always have control over this, but to a degree there's possibility <coughs> that we can pick them down or put them, put, put them down or pick them up and investigate them. Or Sometimes they're just there and calling for investigation anyway. And that we can start to, if we have some degree of stability of presence that we've been cultivating, we can start to unbundle them. I think that might be a computing term or something, to to unbundle them, or another friend says about de-blobbing them. So, you know, experience comes in these big undigestible blobs. But in our meditation practice, we can start to de-blob. Or another, another teacher I know talks about karmic knots, and you know we all have some knots that are particularly tangled and, and you know tightly wound together and with it, when we're unravelling something that's become really knotted together we have to do it very gently with care and it takes time otherwise we just end up tying it all tighter together so one beginning route into un- unbundling or deblobbing is another thing that we've been doing today Is just First of all, noticing well, how I how am I in relationship to this experience that's happening? This is one layer that we can start to peel off of this sense of resistance, of unwillingness to pick something up, or uh, perhaps fear of picking something up. And we can also see start to. And start to sense, feel into. Well, where is where is the sense of self residing in this experience? Or how am I experiencing a sense of self within this? Yeah. Am I the person having this experience? And probably am the person having this experience. That's one sense of self. But then there's also the sense of self of being the person trying to sort it all out and fix it. Mm-hmm. And then maybe the, the person who's actually holding the whole of that predicament. And very often, the, the, one of the first layers we encounter is that layer that Brad spoke about last night, the layer of the inner critic. So the voice that pops up in the mind and says, I shouldn't be having this experience I've done several retreats now I've been meditating all this time maybe I've been meditating for 20 years and I shouldn't be having this experience yeah. or I've heard this teaching so many times before why, why can't I apply this you know, I, can see, I can see how I need to change into relation, in relationship to that and it's just not happening or well, there's something bad or wrong with me for having this experience I shouldn't be upset by it so this is a, an example of, you know, the the uh, simile of the arrows. How we have one one difficult experience arises, and instead of looking after that, the the wound of that arrow, maybe even extracting the arrow, we start firing more arrows at ourselves in response. And the inner critic is like the really uh, unhelpful arrow to fire. And of course, a lot of these arrows come from a a sense of trying to keep ourselves safe in some way, but they're misguided. Yeah. Um, lacking, in, lacking in wisdom or perspective. So first of all, you know, allowing, allowing that this experience is present if the voice of the inner critic arises, that is one piece that we definitely can put down on the earth beside us. Another manifestation is the comparing mind. You know, we start to look at ourselves in, in relationship to other people. Other people cope with this much better. Other people on the retreat look like they're not being wound up by this particular experience or they're, they're able to sit through this. I shouldn't, I shouldn't uh, be taking this so hard. And the comparing mind is something that's so um, insidious in us. We, do, we tend to, if we, we you might notice when, when you walk into a situation like arriving on retreat at Gaia House, how there's this, when we find ourselves in a new situation, there's a subtle kind of positioning of ourselves that we do in relationship to one another. You know, people who look like they might be kind of intimidating on some level, people who we look like they, well, they don't. They don't look like they're any kind of threat to me, and the people who feel like we're kind of yeah, well, this, this person's kind of like me. It's just this this automatic process that the mind goes into again about trying to trying to posi- position ourselves into a into a place of safety, but it's really um, it's a trap, and we also. It's interesting that the that. In the teachings has pointed out how much suffering there is in this comparing mind and that the, it's called conceit and actually the conceit of being there's a conceit of finding ourselves worse than others there's a conceit of finding ourselves better there's also a conceit of finding ourselves the same because we're still measuring ourselves against some idea of who we are and who other people are and how we should be and there's a lack of ease and a sense of um, Anxiety and vulnerability in that. So we might notice the inner critic or the comparing mind, and uh, a, a way that I find something I find really helpful is the sense of seeing the mind. This is from Tanisaro Bhikkhu. I first heard this, but many others might have used the example of seeing the mind not as not as one mind, but as a committee of voices. You know? And these are really perennial members of most of our committees, the comparing mind and the inner critic. And are these the voices, the committee members that we want to listen to, or the other wiser members of the committee to attend to? I don't know if any of you have seen that film Inside Out, Mm -hmm. about the 11-year-old girl, and actually it's all the, the characters inside her mind, the different emotions inside her mind who are trying to run her life for her and uh, jostling for controls. So it's all, there's a big sort of computerized control center. It's like a spaceship, and they're all jostling for the controls with one another. And this is kind of how all our minds are. You know? So you know another, another voice and this is, I think this is one of the, the ones inside her mind is the, the voice of anger. So for example, the experience might be that I'm feeling really cross or angry about something. So in that moment in that experience, I've taken on an identity with the anger. You know, I'm, this anger's got the controls here. So then the sense of me is channeling itself through the experience of anger. If we become aware that we're angry, you know, are we the anger or are we the awareness? Yeah. We can mindfulness can get back in the driver's seat in just that finger snap uh, when we pay attention, yeah. and then it's possible uh, to have compassion for our anger. See, you know, anger is a painful, difficult, unpleasant experience. We can blame ourselves for having it. We can give the controls back to the inner critic or we could give the controls over to compassion. Oh, anger hurts. Anger's like this. Another voice of the committee that pops up with anger is often self-righteousness. Those two things go together. So uh, that sense of this, it's so energizing and, it, and uh, kind of um, somehow solidifying, for, our, affirming for our sense of self to take a position of righteousness. You know, I know that they really shouldn't be doing this. Or they shouldn't be allowed to be doing this. And I know that this is right for a very good reason. So I'm going to hold on to this view. And uh, this actually, again, just can turn into an enormous source of suffering for us. And perhaps, in, you know, in life there are things we need to take a stand on. You can notice in retreat there are many things that you kind of like to take a stand on, but you're kind of not in a position We put you in this state of silence where you can't give one another a piece of your mind. You can't take a stand on it. And actually, if we all took a stand on everything we we, we wanted or we felt righteous about we 'd have quite a probably quite a complicated retreat wouldn 't we um, so this is a real good, really great opportunity to um, investigate this identification with view, which is one of the last things we let go of it 's often observed of you know people like monks and nuns who 've given up so many. Uh, sources of attachment and identification in the world, you know, like a career or a or a home or a this or a that. But the one thing that they can get really stuck on, because it's their last bastion of uh, personal identity, is their views and opinions. You know, <clears throat> so our sense of self, we can, can take up residence in a view, in a belief. if we dig down underneath the experience of anger, there's often a, a softer emotion there underneath. You know, anger is often protecting us from a sense of being hurt or scared something. So we can get in touch with that and sometimes we can investigate, <sighs> well, okay, so what is it that I what is it that I'm scared of? It may be something as basic as, "Well, what other pe- I'm scared of what other people might be going to think of me." Yeah. Do we really need to believe that voice? And we dig down, and maybe there's actually under that was actually I I need I need to feel safe. Yeah. We all have a we all naturally have a longing to be loved and to feel safe. Is my safety really dependent on? Managing what everybody thinks of me it 's impossible to have a situation where everybody is going to think well of us or if they do it 's most unlikely that that 's going to last you know is that where we want our sense of safety to take up residence actually it's in the sense of actually really caring for ourselves and connecting with our humanity that we can start to experience uh, and more of a sense of safety. And I'd like to suggest that actually, we, we do usually feel safe a lot more of the time than we even recognize. You know A lot of the way that we go about our lives requires a tremendous sense of trust in the process of being alive, trust in it. So we've, you know, we've really been talking about trusting that the Earth will support you, trusting that, the, that space will support you. And we're all here because we've been safe and supported sufficiently, if not perfectly, for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. It's remarkable. Sometimes what we tap down to right at the, the base of this is just the sense of real wanting. There's something I really want. We all we all have human bodies. We all have uh, human vulnerabilities and human desires, and we we beings of of desire. And there's things that we want. We work, we yearn for connection with one another. Sometimes that's available. Sometimes it's not available. If we get down to just the the simple the simplest layer of longing that's underneath it. It's often a lot less difficult to hold and to acknowledge and to um, to accept than all the uh, proliferations and the complexities that we layer on top of it. And when I'm really in touch with that sense of wanting something, I can just know well. The experience of wanting feels like this. Can I be here with this experience of wanting? Can I hold this experience of wanting? just for this moment, it's okay. Don't have to create this uh, structure of complexity on top of it. When there's a strong feeling of wanting, it's like, okay, there's a sense of heat or fire in the body. With any emotion, strong emotion, we just can go to that sense in the body, okay, this is, it feels like this. Can this be okay, just for this moment? So we stop that firing of multiple arrows at ourselves. Mm-hmm. It is the, the nature of fact of life that as long as, uh, as, long as we are um, still conditioned by, attached to desire, there will be desire that is unsatisfied. And this can be desire for things in the future. There can also be the desire for things to have been different in the past. Uh, you know, I, I really love something, I think it's Jack Cornfield says about forgiveness, is that forgiveness is about uh, letting go of the wish that the past be different from how it was. Uh, we, we want to, we, we, we tend to have this wish that uh, somehow the past could have been different. We need to, as she says, that forgiveness is giving up all hope of having had a different past. Uh, and this takes a lot of time to do. It's not, none of these things are the things that we can do immediately. But this is, this is the uh, way of uh, un, unravelling, unbundling experience that becomes available to us when we learn to sit still with it and to sit through what's difficult. And it's interesting how um easy, you know, we talk about mindfulness as non judgmental awareness. It's so easy to be non judgmental about the sounds of the birds outside or the sounds of the wind, even about the experience of breathing in and out often. But the closer it gets into this body, you, know, you start getting judgmental about this body, either how it how it looks, how it performs, you know, these Feelings, we get more and more identified with things, and more and more, it becomes more and more difficult to be non judgmental about them. So, one of the helpful things I find is to actually see if we can be non judgmental about this experience of selfing, to see that the experience of selfing, of getting identified with things, is actually just another experience in nature, it's a natural process. You know, we we have it for a reason. Of course, we do it for a reason. We're not we 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 wouldn't operate or function in the world if we didn't have this capacity to have a sense of self. But we get we get stuck in it. You know? So it's when we really believe it, hook, line, and sinker, that it it uh, dampens down or inhibits our ability to respond creatively to different situations. So. We need this sense of self, but can we carry it lightly? Can we see its fluidity? So the thing to do with all this is is not to make a problem of it, not to to disown it, but to take an interest in it. Because non-identification with experience doesn't mean disowning experience either. So we were having a bit of a discussion upstairs about you know when do you when do you put down something, you know, when is it skillful to have this sense of putting down something, and when is it just the kind of putting it away? And Brad was also talking about this a bit, a bit about this last night. This sense of bypassing stuff that we don't want to look at. So we're not trying to disown our experience, but we're um, we're wanting to hold it more lightly see, there's a big difference in resonance in that word of disowning, isn't it? There's a kind of dismissal or a, or a non-caring about it. So this sense of caring, it brings me to another thing that I want to reflect on that's related to this how do we meet difficult experience and that's um, drawing some attention to the figure or the archetype of Kuan Yin is sitting there. So this is the Chinese um, version of the Bodhisattva or the archetype of compassion. And Kuan Yin in, in Chinese, it means she, it's the, her full name is the one who listens to the sounds of the world at ease. And why at ease? Because this is a, uh, an enlightened being who has understood the empty nature of self. When I say empty, I mean the conditions, the contingent nature of self. So, from this place of, of wisdom and an ability to see through the solidity of things and to see, uh, to hold lightly, she's able, or this energy of compassion is able to be. Uh, Completely responsive, ceaselessly responsive, this is a, a, a property of awareness, if you like itself, that awareness is not cold it 's responsive so another another depiction of Kuan Yin, or also in the Tibetan tradition is to a being with a thousand hands and a thousand eyes, so there's, there's, she has a thousand arms, and in the palm of each hand there's an eye, so she sees everything. And responds. Each hand is available to respond and each hand holds a different instrument that's appropriate to respond. So, you know, there might be a sword and a cup of medicine and a a soothing balm and all, all these sorts of different things. So this idea that everything can be met with a compassionate response And this quality of awareness of compassion is there when the heart is uncramped and unrestricted. It's something, it's not something that, again, like, you know, we've been saying, these aren't things that we get from outside. Brad was saying a lot of, we're not looking to get something from outside, we're looking to free up a potential uh, that's already there. So we were speaking about the body as a resonator. The heart is also a resonator. So we resonate along with the emotions and the experiences of one another. Apparently if you put a, a, a violin on a table and you play another violin nearby it, the strings on the violin that's just lying there start to vibrate and we're a little like that as emotional beings or as, as um, beings of awareness. We, we vibrate with the um, with the uh, experiences of one another. So actually the, the words, there's, there are two, two um, words in the Pali tradition for compassion but one of them is anukampa which means to resonate along with or to tremble along with. So, a little story about that that I heard recently about this kind of natural uh, uprising of the capacity for compassion was about uh, the you know the jungle refugee camp in calais, and there was a BBC reporter who was doing a um, a documentary about the jungle and spent some time living with the refugees in the jungle camp and then he went to interview some of the residents of Calais. And there was this older woman who lived in Calais all her life and she was complaining about the existence of this refugee camp on her doorstep and how, what a terrible thing for Calais it was and that these people were really um, a nuisance and needed to be moved on and uh, you know that they were all um, you know, difficult people and you know, probably undesirables and so forth. And then the reporter said to her, well, have you ever been there? And he, she said no. And, and she must have had something, there must have been something in her heart because she. he said, well, would you like to come and have a look? And so she did, and she spent some time with this reporter in the jungle refugee camp and went round and was talking to some of the young men there who were describing how difficult their journey to there had been and what their what the situations that they'd come from and what their hopes and fears and aspirations were for the future. And she began to really connect with that. And she was also really appalled by the conditions that these people were having to live in. And so after this she actually um, started to ask, well what can I I want to help, what can I do to help? So just that getting to to really see and feel the experience of another the difficulties and struggles of another—it was this natural uprising of the wish to help. I can't remember who said this, but the, the saying that an enemy is somebody whose story you haven't heard—and I think that's really—I reflect on this often when I'm in these kinds of situations and on on retreat and so on. You know, we we kind of. Um, We observe people doing things that annoy us, for example. And we really don't know anything about each other. And it it comes to me so often, and especially sitting in the teacher's seat where I get to meet more people and actually get to talk to people, it becomes very clear very quickly that everybody here is doing the best they can. We're all doing the best we can in life. We don't know the story that's leading somebody to behave in a way that irritates us and our story that, that you know, um, that primes us to be irritated by a certain thing. And I find it's a really helpful thing to reflect on. Actually, you know, we're all doing the best we can, and that's great. Another similar sentiment from the the reading that I did the other night from the, uh, the boy who went blind in the accident. And he's talking about his experience of touching things. And he says, you cannot keep your hands from loving what they have truly felt. Or you cannot keep from loving what you've really touched. So when we really connect with something... Then there's this natural we connect with suffering or difficulty. There's this natural uprising of the sense of I want to help. Yeah. So if that happens in relation to our own difficulty, you know, what's it like to sit with that response rather than the critic or the judge or the comparing mind or the uh, getting angry or frustrated with the experience we're having, but just ow. This is really difficult, this being a human being. What can I do to help? And this is the kind of, it's not necessary, so that has a very different feel, doesn't it, from what, what can I do to fix this, to straighten myself out, to make myself better, to sort this out, to even make this go away. You can think of it like you know when a child has flu, and you can't, wave some magic wand and say okay the flu's going to go away by tomorrow morning but you take care of them until the flu is better so it's more that kind of energy i'm available i care and i will do what i can to hold this suffering with kindness or to meet this suffering with kindness maybe there's something i can do to cure it maybe there isn't but that compassionate response can still be there And that's very different from a sense of pity or kind of cold detachment or looking down on it. And I've noticed, especially in my my own sort of journey with self-compassion as a practice, that actually our capacity to have compassion for others is very much connected with our capacity to have compassion for ourselves and we tend to find that much more difficult and to overlook that now, this is another another of the favourite lines of the inner critic or the comparing mind is i have no right to you know be suffering over this because other people are having such a worse time in the world and this is just a way of actually ignoring a bundle that needs to be picked up and held because it's actually the capacity to be in touch with suffering, to be okay with vulnerability, that opens our heart. And this is a, this opening of the heart is actually what makes us receptive to healing, and actually uh, gives us uh, uh, enables us to even progress on this path. So. It's, there's a tradition, like I was talking about when uh, the Dharma talks in monasteries and things, there's a tradition that goes back to the time of the Buddha that you're, you're not supposed to teach anything unless people ask you to so we're kind of assuming here that there's an implicit request because you've come to retreat on Gaya ha- at Gaia House but there's a formula that's used in the, in the Theravadan tradition the, the one that goes back Furthest towards the time of the Buddha that when before giving any teaching there's this request and it says please give me teaching out of compassion so recognizing if we if we want teaching recognizing that actually there's something in us that that is suffering and it's looking to be met it's looking for a response and actually that acknowledgement if it's sincere it opens the heart it opens the ears it makes us receptive whereas if we come at something with a sense of well I'm, you know i'm on i'm on top of things i know i know exactly what i'm doing you know may see if you've got something to tell me but the more we more the more we're in that kind of place the less receptive we are and the less likely we are to be surprised to be opened to actually see something afresh So, compassion, though, you know, Kwan Yin, you know, I said, is one who listens to the sounds of the world at ease. Compassion has to be balanced with equanimity. And wisdom uh, balances compassion with equanimity. Because there's always, in situations, there's always a limit to our ability to help. So there's this, there's this wish or desire to help to be to to alleviate suffering, but there's also a recognition that in any situation there's a limit to what we can do, and this is true our, for ourselves and in relation to others. So for ourselves, maybe you know we we have to respect also that uh, progress or unfolding or um, the healing of a hurt is a process that actually is. Subject in many, many different causes and conditions, and it has its own time. You know, so there's a sense of um, being able to hold this with patience, and with others, there's a there's a value in respecting people's autonomy. You know, quite often we're coming at people, especially people who are close to us or our friends, is like we really want to uh, help you to. Heal from this or get over get over this so that I can feel better. Don't we? It's like, please be happy so that I can be happy. And actually true compassion or true meta, even friendliness or goodwill or love is actually you can be as you are and still I will I will love you and I will be there for you. And that's much harder to do. But this is where the equanimity comes in. So when we when we do a traditional equanimity practice, you know, we reuse reflections like everybody has their own journey, everybody's on their own their own life's path, and your happiness and suffering are not in my control. And these are things to reflect on. We notice with our own happiness and suffering, it's, it feels like it's not in our control even, but it's certainly not in your control, is it? Yeah. So this quality of equanimity, though, it's, it's caring and connected rather than cold and indifferent. So Kuan Yin listens to the sound of world's, the world at ease. And also I, I think this is a, it's a phrase from a, an American civil rights activist. Uh, he talked about looking out at the world with quiet eyes and a peaceful heart all the time while being an activist. Because if we can look out at the world from that place, then all our energy is available to us, and it's not dissipated. So e- equanimity in English, I like the word in English, because uh, equi- equal its like evenness, even-mindedness it means. Equanimity is even-mindedness, this sense of balance in the midst of things. And I love how we've been cultivating that energetically as an energetic experience in the Qigong. When we stay really connected to our core and rooted, we we stay in balance. And being rooted, I love today particularly really been reflecting on the, the image of the trees. And the trees the trees in the wind and trees are a, sim- a symbol for equanimity that I really love. Uh, a sense of uh, how does it, how does a tree withstand the kind of winds that have been blowing today and stronger winds? Well, it has roots that stretch deep down into the ground. And at the same time it has this capacity to move a little in the wind. It's the same with us, with these hearts. We need to be rooted, but also we don't want to be brittle. We want to have a certain amount of flexibility. And then for the tree not to be brittle, it needs to be healthy and uh, well-nourished by sap. So if a tree is old and dried out and dead, then it will snap in the wind. But actually, if, if this being is well-nourished with the sap of awareness, you know, then the capacity to move and to respond to the pressure of the wind is there. And a healthy tree or an equanimous and aware being is also able to survive the odd injury. So, you know, maybe a branch will snap off here or there as we're buffeted by the winds of life, but actually that makes us stronger and we can grow back into a place of balance. And. Uh, so this, this uh, echoes one of, the, one of the words in Pali for equanimity. It means standing in the middle of all this. And trees are the prime example of things that can stand still in the middle of this, the midst of all the winds that blow at them. And then the other, the other word for equanimity in Pali, upekha, means to look over or to, to see with perspective To take a long view. And this to me, I I was talking about the tree, but this connects with the sense of space that we've been cultivating. So the more that we can connect with this wide space of awareness, then the more that the equanimity is available to us. And these these perspectives are available when we're here and we're resourced, we're connected, we're connected with all the different. Energy centres of the body, we're connected with our awareness and we're fully present. And this takes a lot of courage. Maybe last thing I want to share is just a, a short quote about this courage, courage of equanimity from the Christian monk Thomas Merton. That. He's talking about what he calls courageous rest. So some of us need to discover we'll not begin to live more fully until we have the courage to do and see and taste and experience less than usual. There are times when in order to keep ourselves in existence at all, we simply have to sit back for a while and do nothing. The very act of resting is the hardest and most courageous act a person can perform because of what is learned there. Some of us need to discover we will not begin to live more fully until we have the courage to do and see and taste and experience less than usual. There are times when in order to keep ourselves in existence at all we simply have to sit back for a while and do nothing. The very act of resting is the hardest and most courageous act a person can perform because of what is learned there. So I'd like to really appreciate the courage of all of you for sitting through the ups and downs that you've sat through over the last few days and to um, wish that this sitting through and this reflecting and this uh, opening of the heart and opening of the mind to uh, wisdom and to compassion... These these skillful voices in your own committee will uh, bear much fruit. So let's just sit for a moment or two.